And welcome to Talk to Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And um, a it's not often the words fail me, but a, an absolutely dreadful occurrence uh, happened in Alabama last night. Um, a literally a deadly blow to justice, in my view. Um, and I don't know who we could get who's better to talk about it than the scholar from Amherst College, Professor Austin Sarrett, who is an American political scientist who has focused for decades on the death penalty, capital punishment. Austin, thank you so much for joining us today. Decades just makes me feel old. (laughs) Sorry. So um, your thoughts about what, first of all, what did happen in Alabama last night? So what happened in Alabama is the latest chapter in a long-running story in the United States. Uh, That doesn't make it any the less dreadful or disturbing, but there's a kind of familiarity to it that I think we need to recognize. What is that long-running story? Unlike uh, many countries that have had the death penalty in their history, most other countries have chosen a method of execution and stuck with it. That's not been the case in the United States. Since the late um, 1800s, the United States has been on a quest to find a kind of technological magic bullet to produce executions that were safe, reliable, and humane. And that quest uh, took us from hanging to the electric chair, uh, from the electric chair to the original gas chamber, uh, authorized first in Nevada in 1922, and then to lethal injection, authorized first in 1977 in the state of Oklahoma, used first in Texas in 1982. And now this latest chapter in the story, which is the story of uh, this quest for a technological magic bullet, which has produced nitrogen hypoxia. So in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a back to the future moment. It's, uh, we're gonna go back and try gas again. We're gonna do it in a slightly different way than we did it in the past with a different kind of gas. So that's the way I would frame what happened in, um, in last night. Well, you, Austin, sorry. You I'd have... like to ask a question. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. Question of you, Austin. That uh, the revulsion, the revulsion about the Nazis' use of the gas chamber really caused America to recoil from that method of killing people, capital punishment. Why doesn't this gas at this time caused the same revulsion across the country. So uh, this is a different gas associated with a different. So hypoxia is associated in this country uh, often with uh, assisted suicide. So it doesn't have the same um, baggage. I, I mean, the gas chamber when it was authorized in 1922, that was before the death camps. 
Um, and, and these technologies, the right way to put it, the electric air, the gas chamber, lethal injection, no nitrogen hypoxia. If you look at what was said by the proponents of each of those technologies, they all say the same thing, which is this one will be painless and humane. And of course, the experience is that over time, none of these execution methods, the electric chair, the gas chamber, lethal injection, we'll see about nitrogen hypoxia, produce executions which are painless and, and humane. So uh, I think the baggage is different for nitrogen. And, and look, the United States is in a funny place with respect to the death penalty. We're in a period of national reconsideration of capital punishment. Death sentences are way down, executions are way down. But there's certain places, Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma, that cling tenaciously uh, to capital punishment, and they've been by the problems of lethal injection. So that's how we get to nitrogen hypoxia, and people think, oh yeah, that's not a bad way to die because uh, it's been associated with assisted suicide. Awesome. I'm wondering what Sarah, your thoughts you have, are. I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say before we go on, I, I like I want to hear more about this, and I understand the association, although the actual methodology of uh, execution or uh, getting to death is, is different than with assisted suicide. But sure. one of the one of the uh, methods of execution that you skipped over a bit that I'd like to have your opinion on, and that has been suggested in those few states that still actually execute people is the firing squad. Yeah. What do you say about that? I say that we know actually very little about the firing squad, and here's why. Since the end of the 19th century, there have been about, I don't know, eight or 9,000 executions in the United States. In that period, 34 of them have been by the firing squad. So it has not been used very much, and when it has been used, uh, people have found it a kind of repugnant thing to witness. Now, firing squads um, seem to be botched a little less often than uh, other methods of execution. But even when they uh, are not botched, they're a kind of they're a gruesome thing to witness to see someone shot and then to bleed out. And that what ha that's what happens in a firing squad uh, execution. Even Utah, which was the, the home of firing squad executions, uh, decided to end that uh, because they found them too uh, gruesome. Uh, alas, unfortunately, that didn't last so long, and Utah has reauthorized firing squads. But we haven't had a firing squad execution in the United States, I think, since 2010. So they're used very, they're used very, they're used very rarely, and they ape the very thing that uh, we are trying to imagine that we can get away from, which is um, the gruesome violence that happens on our streets every day. So, Professor Austin Sarrett, you have written extensively about the death penalty in the United States. You wrote *The Killing Machine*. You wrote *Gruesome Spectacles*, which is about botched executions. Uh, and, uh, well, I could keep listening. The method of execution, is that really the story, or is the story really 
why do we still have a death penalty when most people in this country <clears throat> profess to be opposed to it? Well, I would uh, I comment what you just said in a slightly different way. So if you look at public opinion polls in the United States and you go back to the 1990s, 1980s, about 80 some odd percent of the American people would say they were in favor of the death penalty. That number is now down, depending on what poll that you look at, it's now down to around 50 percent. And if you ask people whether or not they are in favor of the death penalty or life imprisonment without parole, the support for the death penalty goes down even um, even further. But what is driving uh, these changes is not, I would say, abstract or moral revulsion about the state taking life. I don't think it's that that's driving the changes. I think what's been driving the changes that have put us in this period of national reconsideration of capital punishment are the day-to-day realities of the death penalty. And I think uh, abolitionists have kind of shifted the story a little bit. Yes, there is the Catholic Church, and there are some people who are principally opposed to the death penalty because of their reverence for the sanctity of life. But now much opposition to the death penalty goes like this. I'm in favor of the death penalty in the abstract, but I'm just against executing the innocent. Or I'm in favor of the death penalty in the abstract, but I'm just against uh, imposing it because of someone's race. Or I'm in favor of the death penalty in the abstract, but I don't think we can get it right when we put people into the execution chamber. So I think there is a growing perception that the death penalty is a kind of broken machine from beginning to end. I'd like to ask this, if I might. do you think that the fact that so many people on death row and so many other prisoners uh, in, in state penitentiaries have been freed because it was found out years and years after they were convicted and sentenced that they were innocent? And the innocence, I think, actually moves people to say, you know what? I'm theoretically in favor of the death penalty, but I'm really opposed to killing innocent people, or more specifically, I'm accused of the government killing innocent yeah. people. And we've seen so much of that, that that in fact has moved public opinion. Do you see that as an important piece of this puzzle, or am I overstating it? No, I don't think you're overstating it. I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly right. Uh, if you just look at the death penalty, about 190 people have been exonerated from death row. So we know that there's a lot of error in capital cases. And I think the uh, innocence movement has really succeeded in changing the way in which we think about capital punishment. So instead of thinking about capital punishment as a justified response to gruesome killings, uh, I think a lot of people now, when they hear the word capital punishment, they think, DNA, false conviction, uh, an innocent person sent to death row. So uh, I call this the new abolitionism. The old abolitionism was philosophical and moral and focused on these abstract moral questions. The new abolitionism focuses on, as I said a minute ago, the broken system. And the, the problem of false convictions is at the center of this perception that the death penalty is a broken system. Every once in a while, I am so bewildered, uh, Austin and Bill. 
I read uh, f- probably about three o'clock in the morning this morning when I was just so distraught about this Alabama execution, and I came across an I think it was a Northwestern University poll from 2022. It was a survey. It was only of about 1,500 people who are in favor of the death penalty who are also pro-life. So when you mentioned those people who were concerned about the sanctity of life being opposed to the death penalty, I'm trying to reconcile people who are uh, opposed to abortion because they profess to be pro-life who are in favor of capital punishment. Can you explain that to me, Austin Sarrett? Uh, No, that's above my pay grade, but I would say the following. I think it's a kind of false comparison because you can be in favor of the sanctity of life or believe in the sanctity of life, uh, but still think there are just wars. You can be in favor of the sanctity of life and still think that we have to make some difficult choices that may involve the loss of life in order to preserve greater numbers of lives. And I think that logic often drives what you've identified as this interesting anomaly namely that people are are against reproductive rights for women because they believe in the sanctity of life but those same people are in favor of the death penalty but i think what they would say is by taking someone's life in the death penalty we are accomplishing something that is valuable what we're accomplishing is we're doing justice giving people what they deserve and or they may believe that by using the death penalty they are deterring others from engaging in violent crime and therefore saving lives. So I think the apparent inconsistency may be reconciled if someone thinks uh, maybe to preserve life, sometimes you have to sacrifice it. I also think that there has been, and there was from those who say, I oppose abortion 100% and I'm for the death penalty, is they've changed the verbal construct and say, I am in favor of preservation of innocent life. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that, was a, that was a significant change in the rationalization of those who support capital punishment, killing by the state. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think the emphasis on innocent life is, again, very helpful here. Look, we all have, we all face a dilemma. We face it in our own lives and in our worlds. Uh, and that dilemma is the following. Do we believe in giving people what they deserve? And if you do believe in giving people what they deserve, um, okay, that's fine. The next question is figuring out what they deserve. And that dilemma really plagues us all, I think, uh, when we think about the death penalty. So is it possible to say that someone uh, has done something so heinous that they deserve to uh, pay with their life? Well, I, I don't find that statement to be so absurd. But what I find is that once you've made that statement, you still have to decide, now what are we going to do? What does it mean to give someone what they deserve? And Thank God our society is driven more by more than by that kind of retributive calculus. And that's what I think we need to say to people about the death penalty. You may be repulsed by someone. You might find it repugnant uh, what happened in Buffalo or what happened to the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh or what Dylan Roof did. 
But that doesn't mean that what we ought to do is we ought to take that person's life. We can say maybe they deserve it in some abstract sense, but that's not who we want to be. After all, how we punish is as much about who we want to be as about what the people that we punish have done. We're going to continue our conversation with Professor Austin Sarrett about, well, who we want to be in the context of the death penalty. We'll be right back. I've got 25 minutes to go And the whole town's waiting just to hear me yell I got 24 minutes to go Well, they gave me some beans for my last meal But 23 minutes to go Nobody asked me how I feel I got 22 minutes to go well, I said You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Amherst College Professor Austin Sarrett, one of the nation's leading experts on the death penalty, and we are talking with him today because of what happened in Alabama last night, an execution by an untried, unproven, and apparently quite painful method of execution. We began our discussion with Professor Sarah today with him telling us about the system, the mechanism of the death penalty in the country. And I want to know this from you, Professor Sarah, if I might. Let's say I think person X should be executed. And you think person Y should be executed. We don't agree which one should be executed. But in either event, in order to be able to execute the person I think should die, or you to execute the person you think should die, what we have to do is create an entire system of the death penalty. It's going to be racist. It's going to be classist. I remember the poster, capital punishment means those without the capital get the punishment, which is often true. And so I'd like your perspective with regard to the system of the death penalty and what that does to us as a nation, as a people, as a community as a society? Well, it forces us to make a choice about what our values are and, again, who we want to be. It forces us to say that the maintenance of the death penalty is worth the price of racism, classism. It's also a very gendered system. Women who kill are very, very rarely executed. So. Uh, uh, and again, I'm, I guess I'm in an optimistic moment here because I think if you look at what's happened to the national conversation about the death penalty and you put it in the perspective of uh, several decades ago, it's remarkable the progress that has been made against the death penalty. In the late 1990s, uh, roughly 300 people were sentenced to death every year across the United States. Uh, last year, I think it was a couple of dozen. And again, you go back to the 1990s. At the high point, we executed 98 people in a single year. Again, last year, I think it was 18 that were executed across the country. And we have uh, the first openly abolitionist person ever to be president of the United States. Now, that doesn't mean that the death penalty is going to disappear and it's going to disappear quickly. In fact, the journey to abolition, it, it's a little bit like um, 
the Exodus story. You know, you leave, you leave bondage and you want to get to the promised land, but the journey isn't smooth. The, the political theorist Michael Walzer described the Exodus story as a, a story of two steps forward, one step back. And that's what I think we're going to see on the road to abolition in the United States, that we're going to make progress. More states have abolished the death penalty since 2007 than in any other comparable 17-year period in American history. So we're making lots of progress, two steps forward, but there will be, as there was in Alabama last night, a one step back. That doesn't mean that we should accept that one step back, but that we should keep it in the context of a recognition that this country is on the road to abolition. You're here. Uh, Professor Austin Sarrett, you always give us so much to think about and a really important perspective on the issues that are so important to who we are as a people. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Stay well. We're going to be right back with, well, a really wonderful uh, segment about a young man who is improving uh, the behavioral health of so many people who are patients at Cooley Dickinson Hospital here in Northampton. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.